listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to uh, turn to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to be looking at verses 45 through 51. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be up here on the screen. Ashley does right now. The title for the sermon this morning is Being Faithful Stewards. Uh, This message does fall into the spiritual warfare series, although it's obviously not specifically about spiritual warfare itself or the weapons or the attacks of Satan. It is necessary to understand, though, to walk through the warfare that we're in. The theme that I'm going to be building on this morning is that Jesus is our faithful steward. He has and exercises faithful stewardship over us. And we must be like Jesus. We must remain faithful and the work that he's given us until we receive the good reward that he's going to give us. So if you would stand, we're going to read the text. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants of his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he comes. I tell you the truth. He will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose the servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time, and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master will return on a day when the servant is not aware, and an hour that he is not looking for, and will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you, having blessed the hearing and the reading of your word, would open our eyes through the work of your Holy Spirit that we might receive from your mouth your words of life and be transformed to the image of our Lord the Savior. Father, conform us to your will as you wash us with the water of your word. Cause us to hear with ears of understanding that our hearts might be enlightened, that our minds might be shaped, and that our bodies and lives, lifestyles would be formed in the soil that has been watered by your Holy Spirit, feeding the seed of your word, bringing forth a fruit of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, most of us have, uh, are familiar with the uh, Peter Jackson version of The Lord of the Rings. In the last movie, um, Return of the King, we see for the first time Denethor, who is the steward of Gondor. And there's a, I think, a magnificently thought-out scene in the movie where Faramir, the second son of Denethor, is sent back out to do warfare against the horde of Sauron as they're coming on to destroy the city of Gondor and the realm of Gondor. And although Faramir has already done battle and he's already lost the foothold that they had, and they've come back to build the defenses in the city themselves, Denethor, his father, for reasons that become very apparent, sends his son back into a battle that they know they cannot win. And as Faramir is leaving the city, it's with much courage and mourning because everyone knows they're going out on a suicide mission and they will not return. And in the scene that I'm thinking of, we cut back and forth between the battle scene where the battle is raging, Faramir and his men are being cut to ribbons, and Denethor is sitting in his chambers and he's eating a plate of fruit. And the camera zooms in on his mouth, and he sticks a tomato 
in his mouth and bites it, and you hear the crunch of that tomato as his skin is broken by Faramir's teeth. And the blood of that tomato rains down Denethor's chin at the same time as Faramir is being struck down in battle. Denethor is a steward of Gondor, and he is a wicked steward. And he's shown as such. The second most gripping scene in Denethor's character is when Denethor, seeing the battle is lost, seeing that his son he believes is dead, he decides that he's going to burn himself alive and burn his son, who he believes is dead, despite the fact that he's told by trusted people that, that, that Faramir is still alive, decides that he's going to burn himself alive and burn his son. Denethor's failure as a steward are threefold. First of all, he's lost fidelity to his master. Okay? His role was to serve at the will of the king while the king was away. And he lost fidelity with the king. He was no longer serving as a placeholder for the king, as someone who had been entrusted with the king's things. He was now serving his own propagation, the propagation of his family line, his dynasty. Secondly, as a result of losing fidelity to the king, he became a usurper to the throne. We see this in the scene that I'm talking about where Denthor is sitting. There's, there's a great throne room in this, in this chamber. And there's a throne that's about 10 feet high. And just below it to the side is the seat of the steward. And Denethor's still in that seat. He hasn't taken the physical step of walking up the steps and sitting down on the king's throne itself. But everything else about what he does says, I'm the king. And I have a right to do anything I want in this kingdom because the king has failed us, he's abandoned us, he's not coming back, I'm now in charge. And as a result of that, he fails to make provision for the city and to protect the king's people. Now, Denethor's issue, as this relates to spiritual warfare, relates this way. Denethor's issue was not the battle that was coming to him. It wasn't that Sauron was strong and was overpowering him, and, and there was no hope of victory. Denethor's problem was not that the people around him were saying, you know what, this is a pointless battle. We, we shouldn't be fighting this. We should go hide somewhere. Denethor's problem was that internal traitor that Brett talked about last week. Denethor was defeated by his own pride. Because of that, he was a wicked steward. So uh, let's review for just a second. What's the, uh, the strategy of spiritual warfare? The strategy of spiritual warfare, first, we draw near to God so that we can see the attack of the enemy and combat it. But the first step is we must draw near to God. Secondly, spiritual warfare, we are fighting against spiritual strongholds. These are patterns and ways of life and our emotions and our thinking and our words and our behavior that keep us, as Brett says, I think, yep, as Brett says here, that keep us from experiencing the fullness of Christ. I won't expound that any further. I think that's, that's excellent. So here we are. There are marks of a faithful steward, which Denethor is not. In uh, verse 45, which is in white, I put the portion that we're going to talk about on these screens in white. You don't have to Read the yellow. It's there just to give context. In verse 45, Matthew said, Jesus says this, Who then is the faithful and wise steward whom the king has entrusted with all of his household? It will be good for, uh, I'm sorry, entrust him with, with the stewardship of his household to give the servants their food at the proper time. There's three marks of a faithful steward according to Jesus. One, the steward is wise. Two, the faithful is the steward is faithful. And three, the steward provides for the king's people. Okay? We see this because Jesus immediately contrasts this with what I'll call the anti-marks of a faithful steward. He says, starting in verse 48, But suppose that this servant is wicked and says to himself, 
my master is staying away for a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. And so we have here a direct comparison and a contrast between what it means to be faithful and what it means to be wicked. What it means to be a faithful steward and one who loses faith with the master. And so on the one hand, we have the anti-marks of a faithful steward. The anti-marks of a wicked steward does not believe that the king or the master will return. A faithless steward wastes the master's resources on his own pleasures. And a faithless steward abuses the members of the master's household. Doesn't believe the master's coming back. Abuses the master's household. Wastes the master's goods. As opposed to being wise, faithful, caring for the master's house. Now, the second thing that we see in this passage here is that there are rewards for being a faithful steward. In verses 46 and 47, Jesus says this, It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so. Doing so what? Being wise and faithful, giving the servants their food in the proper time. It will be good for this servant, for the master to find him doing so, when he comes. And I tell you the truth, that master will put him in charge of all of his possessions. I want to draw your attention here to the word good. This word good plays a a part in the whole context where we find Matthew 24 and specifically verses 45 to 51. This word good denotes a righteousness, denotes a quality that is of God. It will be good for this servant. It will be rewarded by God for this servant when he's found doing what he was told to be doing when the master returns. Now, most of us in this room have kids. Most of us in this room have left our kids for some amount of time for some reason, and we've probably told our kids what to do and what not to do while we're gone. And as we all know, it is good for our kids when we find them doing what we told them to do and not doing what, they, what we told them not to do when we return. And it's bad for our kids when we, when they, we don't find it that way. In fact, it's bad for us because typically we end up with a mess to clean up. We end up with discipline having to meet out. The second thing that we need to note here is that this servant is rewarded. How is a servant rewarded? The servant's rewarded by being put in charge of all of the master's possessions. Bear that in mind. All of the master's possessions this steward now receives. It should make you think, well, what, what was this steward not in charge of before when the master left and left him in charge of his household? I don't know. I don't. But there's more to it. There's so much more. It's not just, and so the king, the master will reward him and give him a higher salary or something. This servant's reward is that the master will put him in charge of all of his possessions. Likewise, there is a reward for the wicked steward. Verses 50 through 51. The master of this wicked servant will come in a day that he does not know, in an hour that he does not, that he's not aware of, and he will cut him in pieces, and he will assign him a place with the hypocrites where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice two things. Number one, the king, the master, will come. There's no question about that. The master will return. And when he returns, the servant that he finds acting wickedly, having lost fidelity to the master, will be cut in two and will be assigned a place with the hypocrites. How are we to understand this? Well, the way we understand this is by kind of zooming out, if you will, and taking a look at the the wider context. So the wider context here is Matthew chapter 22 through 26. And in these chapters, these are the final days of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. And what Matthew records for us here are the words of Jesus, specifically in these chapters where he's giving the final rebuke against the Pharisees and then preparing the disciples for life after Jesus' crucifixion. These are the words of someone who knows he's going to his death, 
He knows he's going to be leaving his disciples. And much like in the Gospel of John, we have to pay a special attention to this because Jesus knows what's coming. So what's he say here? Going back to chapter 23, here's what's going on. Jesus is inside the temple. Jesus is bringing a scathing rebuke of the Pharisees, who, by the way, happen to be in the temple. Jesus declares woe to these Pharisees seven times, a number of completion. In the hearing of all the people, the teacher of the law and the Pharisees are sitting there in the temple. Jesus says to them in the hearing of all the people, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, hypocrites. Seven times he says this. He says he calls them blind guides, snakes, sons of hell. They're hypocrites. They practice, but they do not, I'm sorry, they preach, but they don't practice what they preach. Jesus says they are responsible for the murder of all of God's prophets. Jesus underscores this by saying, beginning with innocent Abel all the way to Zechariah, from A to Z, every last prophet, you teach of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, have murdered. Jesus starts chapter 23 by saying, they really do sit in the seat of Moses. They really are in charge. But don't do what they do. Listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. Chapter 24, 23 ends, and Jesus walks out of the temple. And immediately the disciples, probably feeling a little bit nervous, and the other way that we are, when we feel nervous, we start talking about things that are unimportant. And, and so they, they're walking out the temple, and they look at the temple, and they say, Jesus, look at this temple. Isn't this temple impressive? Can you believe this thing? And Jesus says, yeah, that's going to be destroyed. Every last stone that's going to be thrown down. The disciples walk on, and, and they're not really sure how to answer this. And so they come to him in verse, I think it's two or three. say later, in private, they come to him when they're on the Mountain of Olives, and they say, what do you mean by this, and when is your day coming? When is this destruction going to come? And Jesus spends the majority of chapter 24 preparing the disciples and warning them for what's going to come. And so we have in verses 1 through 3, Jesus says the king will really return, and he will judge his people. And then we have in verses 4 through 6, Jesus says to them, this is just a synopsis, don't be, dis- don't be uh, led astray. There's going to be a lot of things going on. It's going to be really easy for you to be led astray. Don't be led astray while the end is coming. Don't get distracted. He then says in verse 14, but those who endure to the end will be saved. In verse 27, he says, therefore, what's he say? He says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. If you hear that Jesus is in the inner room or Jesus is out in the desert, don't be deceived. When I come back, it's going to be obvious, is what he tells them. I'm going to come out of heaven. The clouds are going to open. There's going to be a really loud trumpet. The angels are going to come with me. You're going to know it's me when I come. Don't be led astray. Don't be deceived. But endure till the end. That's important. It's not just make it to the end. and It's not just endure for a time. Endure until the end and you'll be saved. The rest of the chapter 24, verses 7 through 13, 15 to 26, and then 28 to 41 can be summarized this way. The end is going to be really, 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 really super bad. And then we get to our text. And Jesus says, but who is the wise and faithful servant? And this is where we find this ourselves. And then we move forward, and Jesus sets us up very nicely to move into chapter 25. Again, the context here is 23 through 26, the last days before Jesus' crucifixion. Chapter 26, Jesus is going to go and he's going to celebrate the last Passover. We're going to have the Lord's Supper, and Jesus is going to die. 24, don't be deceived, don't be led astray, I'm going to come back. Hell is real, essentially. And then he asks the question, who is the faithful and wise servant? Who's going to see this coming, and how are they going to respond? In chapter 25, what Jesus does is he essentially exposits what that wise and faithful servant is. 
There are three parables. The first parable, um, we'll go through all three, but the first parable is the, the virgins and their oil. The second parable is the servants and their talents. And the last one is the separating of the sheep and the goats. Each one of these is expositing what it means to either be good, faithful, or wise. What Jesus said about the faithful and wise servant back in 24. Let's look at this for a second and see what Jesus is saying. Verses 1 to 13, Jesus is expositing wisdom. And this is the point. It is folly. It is foolishness to not prepare for the master's return, for the king's return and to fail to watch for it. Why do I say that? Because in this parable, there are virgins. There's ten virgins. And they're waiting for the bridegroom to come. They're going to celebrate with the bridegroom. Five of them bring oil in containers, as well as their lamps. Five of them just bring their lamps. The bridegroom's long in coming. They all fall asleep. They're woken up at midnight. Someone's saying, hey, the bridegroom's here. They all start to relight their lamps. Those that don't have oil can't relight their lamps. Those that do have oil relight their lamps. The ones that don't have oil recognize, hey, we can't see anything. And they, they go to their compatriots and they say, would you give us some oil so we can light our lamps? And they say, we can't. We don't have enough for you. Go and buy some. I'm not sure where you're going to buy oil in the middle of the night. Go buy some oil now. It's too late. And they go away to buy oil, and when they come back, they find the door's been closed, they knock on the door, and the bridegroom comes, and the bridegroom says something really weird to them. I don't know you. I don't know you. The five that had oil are inside. The five that didn't have oil, they're not coming into the feast. Don't get too distracted with, with questions about, well, why didn't... Of course he knew them. They were celebrating his wedding. Understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is expositing what it means to be wise. He's not expositing what it means to be a good bridegroom or to be hospitable. Don't get distracted by that. That's not what's going on here. 25, the parables that come in 25, build out of our text in chapter 24. And what he's saying is, to be wise, and he says this, there were five wise virgins, and there were five foolish virgins. The wise virgins brought oil. They prepared for a wait, and they didn't know how long they needed to prepare for, which meant they had to prepare for an unknown, which meant they had to prepare for a lot. And that's what they did. A faithful steward is wise, watches for the return of the king, and is prepared for it. Verses 14 through 30, Jesus is exposing faithfulness, and this is the point. It is wicked, it is wicked to be lazy. No lightning struck here, so I'll move on. It is wicked to be lazy or to fail to labor for the king's profit. So there's three servants. The master comes to his three servants. He's going away on a trip. He gives to the first one ten talents. It's an amount of money. He gives to the second one two talents and to the third one. He leaves. He comes back at some point in the future, and he calls me and says, okay, um, I'm home. Give me the stuff that's mine. The first one comes, and you know the story. He's multiplied by two. He's invested. He's done something. He's used it. He's labored while his master was gone, and he had five when, he, when the master left. The master comes back, and there's five more that he can give to the master. And the master says to him, what? Well done. What's he call him? Good and faithful. You see how this is coming out of 25? Well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You've done well with a little. I'll give you more. The guy who was given two, same thing. He's multiplied it by two. Comes back, gives his master the two. The master says the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy. And the one that was given one comes in. And again, don't get distracted by this master who wasn't compassionate toward the fears of a servant. That's not the point of this parable. This guy comes in, he says, I knew that you're a shrewd guy. I know that you're really good at business. I know that you reap where you don't sow. I know that you gather where you haven't cast seeds. And because of that, 
Because you make money without even trying, you make money in your sleep. Because of that, I was scared. And so I took your money and I buried it in the ground so I could make sure it stayed safe. Oh, thank you. Now, we might expect that, that, that the master at this point is going to say, well, okay, fair enough. But he doesn't. He says, no, you, you're lazy. That was laziness. Don't tell me you were afraid. That was pure laziness. You should have at least gone and given it to the bankers so that when I came back, there was interest on it. Don't tell me you were afraid. That's a lie. It is wicked to be lazy and to fail to labor for the king's profit. What Jesus says at the end of this parable is, this guy is going to be cast out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. We'll come back to this weeping and gnashing of teeth in a second. In verses 30 through 45, we have an exposition of what it means to be good. Jesus says, after he finishes the parable of the servants and the talents, he says, the king's going, I am going to return. I'm going to return with the angels. And what I do, I'm going to separate all people. Like a shepherd separates the goats from the sheep, I'm going to put the goats on my left hand, the sheep on my right hand. I'm going to say to the sheep, well done. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was weary, you comforted me. And they're going to say back to him, when did we see you naked or in prison or needing? He's going to say, tell you the truth, whenever you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And when he says it to the goats, he's going to say, you didn't do it. You were not You failed to show mercy. You failed to care for the members of my household. Because of that, I'm going to cast you into hell, the eternal fire that's been prepared for the devil and his angels, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a couple things that we need to recognize coming out of this. The point here with uh, this last one, I gave a statement for the other two, it's simply this. It is wicked to fail to care for the members of, the household of God, especially those who are weary, who are in need, who are suffering. We need to notice these three things. Number one, like Denethor, what Jesus is describing in these parables is what it means to be a wicked steward. A wicked steward does not look for the coming of the king, does not labor wisely for the profit of the king's stuff, In Denethor's case, it was the kingdom itself. It was the people. He does not care for those who are weak. does not show mercy. We need to notice that this is an eternal judgment that Jesus is talking about. Starting back in chapter 22, this statement where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus has been using this over and over again. And when Jesus uses this, what he's talking about is a final, eternal judgment. Either you passed or you failed. If you fail this, it's hell. We have to recognize this. Because if we don't recognize this, then we're going to misread these parables. We're not going to understand our text in chapter 24. And the last thing that we need to recognize here is that this is not a separation of believer and non-believer. We want to read the third parable, the separation of the sheep and goats, as if it's about believers and non-believers. Non-believers are going to go to hell, believers are going to go to heaven. Incorrect. If this follows, if Jesus is laying out a pattern here, then what he has are people who externally professed to be a part of those who should receive a reward and internally believed that they were going to. But when the king came, they found out that they had failed. We have to recognize this. Because this is talking to us. These are talking to the church. It is Christians who will find themselves in the place of not having enough oil and being told, I never knew you. It is Christians who are going to be told, you were lazy. You were wicked. You squandered what I gave to you. And it is Christians who will be told, you did not care for me.
we see in chapter 25 that there are types of a faithful steward. And while being a faithful steward has a myriad of specific applications, there are three things that I want to draw our attention to. Being a faithful steward means this, loving mercy, doing justice, and walking faithfully with God. In chapter 23, as Jesus is indicting the Pharisees, Matthew 23, verses 23 to 24, should be up on the screens. Look at it with me. Jesus says to them, Woe you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your dill and thyme and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. What are those more important matters? Mercy, faithfulness, justice. He says, but you should have done the former and not neglected the latter. Or you should have done the latter and not neglected. You should have done all of them. <laughs> but you're blind. And so you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. This is what Jesus tells the Pharisees. Those who sit in the seat of Moses, those who rightfully rule over the people of God, those who are giving the law, he says to them, you, did, you failed to show justice, to be merciful, and to be faithful. Jesus is echoing what we see in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where we, we read this, He has shown you, O man, what is required of you, and what the Lord desires, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I, I submit that walking humbly with your God is the same thing as walking faithfully. To walk faithfully means you walk under the leadership of, under the rules of, working for the good of. Walking humbly with your God is the same thing. It's recognizing simply this. He's God, I'm not. He's given me responsibilities, but not prerogatives. He's got the prerogatives and the responsibilities. He's shared with me the responsibility, but not the prerogatives. I tell my kids this. You probably told your kids something similar. Obedience is this. Do what I tell you, when I tell you, how I tell you with a good attitude. If I tell my son, come here, and he runs to me, it's fine. But if I tell my son, come here and walk, and he runs to me, it's disobedience. Where God has told us what to do, we don't have prerogatives. Where God's left it open, we do, and we use wisdom. That's what I mean by God has not given us prerogatives. Where God has told us what he expects of us, we don't have an option. It's either obey faithfully or disobey wickedly. Finally, we need to recognize in these types of what the faithful steward is and who is this faithful steward. The question that Jesus asked back in verse 45, who is the faithful steward then? The answer is this, simply Jesus is that faithful steward, the faithful servant. Why? Because Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. Why? Because Jesus, uh, what do I say here? Jesus strove to the very end. Jesus didn't give up in the middle. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath to the last drop. Jesus not only lifted a finger to help us overcome, but he lifted his hands and his feet, his side, his head, his back, and his blood. Jesus is the archetype of the faithful steward. Because Jesus is the archetype of the faithful steward, we who have been called to be faithful stewards have only one hope, and that is to follow closely on the heels of our Savior and to be conformed to who he is. Now, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, right? This isn't new. This isn't surprising theology. This is the word that God has given to us. There's a call to be a faithful steward. The title of the sermon is Being Faithful Stewards. Bay Ridge, as Brett has told you, and as many of you know from your own personal lives, has been in a season of trial 
of purification since at least the beginning of 2017. Our Heavenly Father has been doing surgery in our body. Brothers and sisters, you know as well as I do, it's been painful. The reason that we're in a spiritual warfare series is because we've seen what God is doing. We see that God is at work. We see that Jesus is talking to our body here, this church, those people sitting next to you. We recognize that. We said, well, how do we respond to what's going on in our body? Well, let's talk about spiritual warfare. Okay. Do you realize that the spiritual warfare series was originally only going to be one message? That got expanded out. Our entire sermon schedule got totally thrown out the window about eight weeks ago. And with very little preparation, we started off into the series of spiritual warfare. Why? Because God has something to say to us. Because God is at work in our midst. At that time, Tom Sr. received a word from the Lord, and it was simply this, being faithful stewards. Those words had meaning. Being was a present, active action. Going on now, no end in sight. Being. Faithful had to do with completing that which we were given. If you say you're going to do something, do it. If you don't know how to do it, find out. If you need help, ask for help. These are Tom's words, not mine. But more than that, it has to do with Jesus' faithfulness to us. Because we don't have the ability to be faithful, except that Jesus was faithful. And finally, stewards. We are stewards of our king. We have been given a charge and a stewardship with which we hold on to which we are responsible for, that we have a responsibility to discharge our duty to. Which again, like I tell my kids, God's told me what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. I've got to do it, and with a good attitude. Which is why James tells us, consider it all joy when you encounter these things. Yes, I'm going to suffer, but Jesus suffered for me. Yes, it's going to be hard. Jesus came down from being God and became human. Yes, It's hard. Yes, it's painful, but it's worth it. Because either God's real or he's not. Either heaven's real or it's not. Either hell's real or it's not. And if you've staked your life on the premise that God is real, heaven's real, and hell's real, then it might be hard and it might be painful, but it's well worth it. So the question is, what is Jesus saying to Bay Ridge? And how do we listen to hear Jesus speaking to us? I'll talk more about this in the after hours um, this coming week. How do we listen to what Jesus is saying to us as a church? I want to point on a couple things here. Being a faithful steward requires a servant to continuously consider that he is, in fact, working for a master. And his responsibility is to work for the profit of his master. Being a faithful steward implies enduring as a wise servant who looks for the return of the king, prepares for the time to be long and hard, and spends that time doing what he was left to do until the king comes and relieves him. Being a faithful steward means you can't be a hypocrite. Being a faithful steward is wholly incompatible with hypocrisy. Outward conformity is no indicator of inward fidelity. Don't misread those three parables. Outward conformity is no indicator of inward fidelity. Fidelity is measured this way. Have you earnestly continued to endure in obedience 
and applying grace and mercy and justice in every situation, in every place where God's given you responsibility. This is spiritual warfare. And being a faithful steward is assaulted by our three great enemies. Our flesh is lazy and it whimpers to us. This is too hard. I've already done so much. I can't do any more. And it's not, everything I've done so far hasn't accomplished what I wanted to. The world sings to us to try to distract our attention and to tell us that we're wasting our time and we're being silly to, to pin our hope and to prepare for this mythical future. This religious thing that's just a, a concept that sociology tells us clearly and obviously. People developed religion to help us deal with hard things, but there's nothing really to it. It just, it's just something to make you feel good. To, to plan for the future based on this myth of religion, it, it's just, come on, that's ignorant. It's backward. And Satan whispers in our ear, the king's not coming. There's no king anyway. So do whatever you want. We must remember that we are, as individuals and as a church, in the midst of spiritual warfare. And we must battle against the strongholds, emotional, psychological, mental, the thought patterns, our behavior patterns, our speech patterns that are not in line with the stewardship that God has given to us. Remember John 15, verse 2. Jesus is a vine dresser. He comes into the vineyard. Every vine that is not producing grapes is cut off and thrown into the fire. And every vine that is producing grapes is pruned so that it produces more. Remember Luke 9, verse 6, uh, verse 61. No one who sets his hand to the plow and then looks back, is worthy of being a servant in the kingdom of God. This is to us that these things are written. They're written to all Christians. That to be a faithful steward, this is the word that Tom Senior received and told the elders. For us to be faithful stewards, we have to wrestle with this as individuals and as a church. What God requires of you and of me sitting here in this room, is that we labor enduringly, faithfully with the charge that he's given us until he returns and relieves us of our duty. We must also remember this. Jesus is our faithful steward. He is our only hope. He's the one who rescued us, He's the one who redeemed us. And because he was our faithful steward, he strengthens us to be faithful stewards. I'm going to give us three questions that I want you to consider by way of application. Question number one. They'll probably be up here on the screen. And I really want you to consider these. We're going to go to communion in a minute. But I want, you, I want us as a church to take a moment in light of the text here where Jesus is asking Bay Ridge, who is the faithful and wise servant? What God is calling to us and saying to us, I'm calling you at Bay Ridge as individuals and as a congregation to be wise and faithful servants. These are the questions. What areas or resources has God given to you or to us? Gifts, talents, time, relationships, experiences, interactions. If you don't know what the resources are that God's given you charge of, you're probably going to waste them. I am too. We have to do an inventory. We have to say, what has God given me? What is God going to say to me? Uh, I'm holding you accountable for this. When I stand before God, what is he going to say to me 
about how did you deal with this thing? What did you do with this gift I gave to you? What did you do with this resource that I entrusted to you? It's more than just my money, my time, my kids. I'll tell you what I'm not looking forward to, my health, my diet. I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to even less than that, my thoughts. Even less than that, my words. Because out of my heart have come very, very vulgar things. And, and not just another lifetime ago. Out of my mouth in the last several days have come out vulgarities that shock my senses to hear me saying them. And God's going to hold me accountable for that. If I think that God's not going to hold me accountable for that, I'm not going to put a guard on my mouth. And I'm not going to take captive every thought that raises itself up against the knowledge of Christ. Second question. Are there any areas in your life where you have not put on Christ. This is what Brett talked about the other week. Putting on Christ is submitting to him. It is being conformed to Christ's image. If Christ was the faithful steward, the faithful servant, if he endured to the end, if he gave his last drop of blood for our sake, if he was faithful with the charge that God gave him, the only way I can be a faithful steward is to put Christ on in every area of responsibility that God has entrusted to me. And so when I, run in, when I encounter an issue in my life and I say, God, all of a sudden I realize I'm having a problem here. I don't know how to deal with this. And all of a sudden I see the sin coming out of my life as a result of this thing I'm running into. My only response can be to turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm clearly not putting you on here. And I don't even know how to put you on in this case. But I'm asking you, because I know you died for me and because I know you are faithful, would you come and conform me? Would you cleanse my mind? Would you change my heart so that it reflects yours? Brother and sister, if that's the only prayer you pray each day, you'll be praying okay. Third question. In what areas, and here's a dirty little secret, none of us are faithful stewards. All of us are wicked. Okay? Just go ahead and put that on the table. Those three parables, again, are to us. All of us are wicked. All of us are in the call here. So in what areas do you hear the whimper of your flesh, the song of the world, or the whisper of Satan? It might sound like this. You've already done too much. You don't have anything more to give. You've already given your time. You've already given your money. You've already served. You've already poured yourself out. You've already cared. You don't have anything left. It might sound like this. God really can't expect you to keep on going. A loving God wouldn't do that to you. A good God wouldn't let you go through that. It might sound like this. It's silly and it's stupid to plan for some mystic future with an unseen God. Get real. Get your head out of the clouds. Stop being ignorant. Stop being backwards. Life is about what we're doing right here, enjoying good food, having good friends, being a good person, the rest will sort itself out. Don't worry about that. That's, that's just sanctimoniousness. You're just trying to make yourself better than us. Might sound like this. You've got the right to spend your money, your time, your resources, to use your vacation, your holiday, your time, your resources, to raise your family, to set your priorities, to commit to your church, 
to submit to godly leaders. You've got the right to do that however you darn well please. Fathers, we come to communion. Lord, I ask first of all, Lord, you know that I have labored to hear your Holy Spirit, to rightly divide your word of truth. Father, I know that you are speaking to us as a congregation. Jesus, I know you are a good shepherd of speaking to us. And so I ask, Lord, if everything I've said here this morning is not from you, Father, would you strike it from our record? Would you cause for your voice alone to be heard, Lord? Jesus, in light of your word, I ask that you would forgive us for our lack of fidelity to you. I ask that you would forgive us for allowing ourselves to be led astray. And I ask that you would forgive us for misusing the gifts that you have given to us. But Father, even more than that, I ask that we would be strengthened through the body of Christ, which was broken on our behalf, that he might present us to God so that we might be faithful, just as Christ was faithful, so that we might be wise, as he was wise, so that we might endure to the end, giving our lives for the sake of your kingdom, just as he has given his life for us. We come to the communion table because we are broken. It is here that we receive forgiveness. We're reminded that though our sin is as scarlet, Christ's blood has washed us as white as snow. Regardless of where you are this morning, whether you hear my words and you say, it's all true and it's good, I'm glad it's not directed to me, or maybe you're the one who says, um, Jeremiah, my toes hurt a lot. Regardless of where you are, this table is a table of forgiveness and redemption because Christ is our faithful steward. He will hold on to what God has given and charged for. What I received from the Lord, I pass on to you the Christ on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and after breaking it, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after dinner, he took the cup. Pouring it out, he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread or you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Father, I thank you that you have seen to it that we might be forgiven. That you have loved us with an everlasting love. And you have provided for us a way of salvation. I ask, Lord, that you would continue to speak to us and to conform us to the image of your Son. I'm going to ask that the elements are passed out. And let's go ahead and not play music. Let's just sit in silence before the Lord as a congregation. We'll come back and take this together in a few minutes. If you're a visitor here, this communion table is a table of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, was raised from the dead for the forgiveness of your sins, you've put your trust in him as the only one who can give you eternal life, then I welcome you to come. If you haven't done that, I ask you to let this pass you by. Scripture takes this very, very seriously. It is very unwise to take communion in an unworthy manner.
It's a joy to take it knowing that Christ has given it to us freely. Jesus, you came that we might have life and that more abundantly. Because we were dead, you came as the resurrection and the life to bring us back from the dead and to present us to God. Father, as your people, we walk before you in this life of living death, waiting to the day that our eyes will finally come alive in eternity for the first time, never again to close. And until we find that day, Lord, we struggle. But Lord, you're acquainted with our sorrows. You are familiar with our pain because you came and took this same flesh on yourself and you endured to the end sinlessly. You resisted the call of the world. You put down the whisper of Satan. And you laid down your flesh in obedience to your Father. Because of that, we too may know what it is to have life in this world of death. I thank you, Jesus, that it is not based on our performance, but on your faithfulness that you receive us. And I ask, Father, that as we, as a church, listen to you, we would hear your voice calling us closer and closer to your heart. Father, with every day, we would seek to know you more intimately, to love you more fully, to obey you more completely. Take and eat. Father, surely our sin are many, but your mercy is more. You are the God who is faithful to blot out every transgression, to cast away as far as the east is from the west the remembrance of our sins, to present us to yourself pure and spotless and without wrinkle, because your Son's blood has covered all of our iniquities. Father, in our weakness, you prove yourself strong. In our failures, you prove yourself as the one who has overcome. Because you laid down your life, Jesus, we have now the victory. I thank you, Lord, that you have laid hold of us, that you will not let go, that we have your son's blood as a testimony to your great love towards us. Take and drink and joy. And fathers, you have given us a charge and a stewardship. And so you have empowered us through the work of Christ to carry it out. I ask, Lord, that you would guide us this week, guard us, that we might please you in all things, that we might labor enduringly, we might be presented to you next Sunday as individuals and as a congregation, as those who have labored diligently for our King. In Jesus' name, amen. The benediction this morning will be from Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 14, loosely remembered. Would you stand? In the same way, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its desires. And do not present the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present the members of your body as being brought from death to life, as instruments of righteousness to God. 
for sin shall have no dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Go in that grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.